Bald Men on Campus with Jay Billis, LaFonso Ellis, and Seth Greenberg. I'm Seth Greenberg, and welcome to World's Greatest Podcast, Bald Men on Campus with very follically challenged individuals leading the way. Uh, Jay Billis, he started to be follically challenged probably at about 35 years old. My hair went back on defense at about 22. And Fonz, basically, I don't think his hair is really back on defense. He just thinks Bills and I are extremely sexy and decided to join the club. <laughs> I have two holes, Seth. One in the front looks like a crescent moon, and then one at the very top that's a full circle. Stephen A. gets away with that. I don't know why you can't get away with it. Uh, (laughs) And last night, we saw some really great basketball. We saw two number ones go down. So let's start with the first one of the night. Uh, USC Stanford at Stanford. Just my first observation watching SC and really zeroing on them. I think they're a really good defensive team. I think they're an experienced team. I think they have size and length. I was underwhelmed with them offensively. I think they're a really good team, top 25 team, but they surely not a top five team. What was your guys' take? As I watched them last night, Seth, is the one thing I noticed, and I was interested to know about this coming into the season, Taj Eddy, I don't think he gets enough credit for how good he was. He could create his own shot off the bounce, could get in the lane, make plays for others. When when the game was in the last four minutes, certainly the last two minutes, and they needed the ball in the hands of somebody who could make a play, he was that guy. They don't have that guy this year. They have a wonderful complement of players. But Ellis has been a great uh, addition, obviously, in the transfer portal. But they don't have that guy that can go get one late out on the perimeter. And I felt uh, that was exposed playing against a really good defensive Stanford team. I was surprised when I saw USC in the top five, and I get it that they were undefeated uh, going into the Stanford game. But I mean, Spencer Jones and Harrison Ingram each had 21 points. I mean, they did basically what they wanted. And, uh, you know, Stanford played a good game, and Stanford's a a solid good team, but they're not great. And, you know, I I know the game was on the road, no fans, all that stuff. So it was, uh, was difficult. But um, and sometimes no fans can kind of tranquilize an opponent. Uh, uh, you know, you think that the the crowd being into it is is more difficult. But but sometimes I think not having fans at all can be a can be even a, a bigger hurdle, if you will. It's not an excuse, but just interesting. Um, but look, I think USC is good. I'm not surprised that we have no undefeated teams in the middle of January. I don't think people realize, uh, or at least it's good to remind ourselves that. What we saw last year from Baylor until they ran into COVID late in the season and from Gonzaga to have two teams that ripped through their their schedules like those two teams did. That's unusual in basketball. You don't see it very often. Mm-hmm. And heck, we didn't have an undefeated team in football this year, for crying out loud. If you're not having <laughs> football, how can we expect it in basketball? Yeah, you know, I'll tell you, speaking of Stanford, Harrison Ingram, he was an impressive freshman. Yeah. I mean, he really was six, seven. He got that big, thick body. He can shoot mm-hmm. it. He can post. He he was really impressive for Stanford uh, for me. And then the second undefeated that went down, obviously Baylor went down yesterday without Jeremy Sohan uh, against uh, a Texas Tech team that got Kevin McCuller back. Mm-hmm. McCuller was huge yesterday. In fact, I talked to Mark Adams before the game. He didn't think McCuller was going to play. And he sent me a text after the game. I tried to talk him out of it, but I guess once yes. again, he didn't listen to me. Yeah. <laughs> The kid, had, I mean, he had 12 and five assists and six rebounds. I thought he was really good. Texas Tech's defense was terrific. But, you know, what was your guys' take? No Jeremy Sohan. Look, you're not going to go undefeated. 
Does it change your opinion of Baylor at all? No, it does not. I think Baylor's still a contending team. And, you know, look, it, it, it we're, we're listening to it in football now. I mean, the question after Georgia won is, can Georgia be the dominant program in college football? And is this a dynasty? I mean, they won one championship. Now, now <laughs> we're talking dynasty. I mean, it's a little early for that. And it's not like Nick Saban and Alabama are going away. And we do the same thing in basketball. You know, teams undefeated. And, and, you know, we don't have any data of them losing, so it's hard to imagine. Then they lose, and we're like, going, how, how are they going to win again? Um, I know we're not saying that. But, you know, I've Baylor's said it a lot legit. of times in my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, ba- you know, Baylor's legit. They're yes. not as good as they were last year, but they were historically good last year. They're one of the best, uh, you know, Gonzaga and Baylor were, you know, two of the best teams I can recall in the last five, ten years. And uh, so I think they're going to be there, you know, right there throughout the course of the season. Uh, You know, I I haven't lost my feeling yet that Purdue uh, is may very well be the best team. But but it's kind of nice this year that, you know, look, we're going to have rotating number one. We have that in most years. But even when you have a rotating number one, there are times when you have a feeling, nope, that's the best team. I remember in 2014. You know, heck, this time of year, Louisville was ranked outside the top 15. And I've gone, I think they're the best team. Uh, and they wound up winning it. You know, you, you kind of sometimes you're right. But but I, I still have a feeling that it's Purdue. And look, there's a long way to go. We're halfway through. And we do have some data behind us. But the one thing I know is, especially with the way the games are being called now, mm-hmm. um, it is not going to be as difficult this year uh, to slow a great offense down because the mm-hmm. officials are allowing uh, more clutching, grabbing. You can blow up dribble handoffs. You can blow up ball screens easier than you could in past years, and uh, and that's going to mean uh, a, a few a few upsets that uh, it, with lower scoring games. Mm-hmm. In in some of these games, it, it, this year it is way easier to have a rock fight against a really good team. You, you can mm-hmm. you can slow these things down into a fist fight in a heartbeat. I absolutely agree with you, Jay, uh, with with the holding. <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's almost wrestling right now, again, when you're coming off screens. And it used to be that way down in the post, but it's happening down out on the perimeter as well. Uh, as I look at this Baylor team, uh, and we talked about the guards that they've lost, I don't know if we emphasize as much how important Mark Vital was to that team last year as an undersized four who obviously could guard one through five in our collegiate game. But what I thought what made him special is his ability to be able to guard one through three and not need help. You guys know how much I love Matt Meyer. That's my that's my dude. <laughs> 16, can shoot it, athletic. But when Matt Meyer gets out on the perimeter in their switching situations, he gets beaten off the dribble. And that forces Baylor to get in rotations, and I think that makes them vulnerable. But I got to give a lot of credit to Texas Tech. I mean, you're playing without Terrence Shannon. They're playing without McCullough until last night. And I thought – Clarence Nodolny took advantage of those guys being out. He had 17 points in their win over number six, Kansas. He had 11 points in last night's game. And I think he's one of those guys that they've been missing. Uh, uh, more of a combo guard, but he's got a bit of a point guard's mentality. Uh, his assist are not up, but he gives them another guy who can get a basket off the bounce. I, I, I love the way Texas Tech has played defensively, but I think his emergence is going to help them going forward. You know, Mark Adams is not is not worried about their defense. They're going to guard every game. I mean, they're as good a defensive team as I've seen this year, Texas Tech. I think the question for Adams and his staff has been, how do we get more flow on offense? And that was the best that I've seen them look this year against uh, their their game against Baylor. I mean, 
you know, they shot a, they must've shot 50% from the field. I mean, they were, they were much more efficient and look, it's easy to go to their, their game in the garden against Tennessee, which was, a uh, you know, nobody could throw it in the ocean in that game, but that's not who they are either. It's in the middle. So I don't, I don't think they're necessarily going to be as good offensively as they were uh, against Baylor. They're, they're never going to be as bad again as they were against Tennessee, but but I like their team and and Adams is a great defensive coach. I think he's an outstanding coach, period. Um, but but it, it, it I think it's been a little bit difficult for them to strike the balance between an offensive flow and that gritty, tough defense that they play. Because, man, they are they get down to stance and they guard you for the entire shot clock. It's really impressive. Yeah, and Nadal, you think about this, he does have a little bit of a point guard mentality. Like, he, at least he has a handle where he's not yes. turning it over. He can advance, yes, advance the ball up the floor. And, you know, you talk about defense. For that last possession for Texas Tech, you're talking about Santos Silva guarding out on the perimeter two different times, sitting in the stance, arms out, covering space, multiple switches, uh, keeping the ball in front. Obviously, you have to guard the three-point line and then getting a contested shot. They were so connected and their ability to communicate and come together and keep the game, the ball in front of them. That was really impressive. Now the other game in, in the big 12, you know, the Kansas Iowa state game, uh, Kansas, I do have concerns about, they're not getting anything out of Dave McCormick. Obviously Reddy yes. Martin didn't play in that game. I thought Harris was absolutely phenomenal, mm-hmm. especially but the, the last three buckets uh, the coaches having just total trust. We've been in here before. This is what we're going to do. No hesitation. Iowa State pushes it down. Brockington makes a tough mid-range jumper. No hesitation. Coming right back the other way. Kansas pushes it. I thought I thought what didn't get noticed was Oshai Abaji sets a little bump to give Harris a chance to get downhill, get to his right hand, and finish. No hesitation. Ball came right inbounds. I think it was Hunter who pushed it and found uh, – Mm-hmm. in the weak side and he gets a good look and nice job of defensive transition containing the ball and then contesting shot i just thought that was a bam you know you talk about a bang bang play mm-hmm. that was really good but the big 12 the, the defense is so far ahead of the offense and even though they're losing games i, I was impressed with iowa state mm-hmm. uh and i'm amazed just that how kansas finds ways to win games because i look at their roster right now yeah and it's brown and it's harris mm-hmm. That's about it. Yes. Yes. Hey, 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 Seth, Jay, I've been, I've been meaning to ask you guys about that because you two, obviously, Seth, coached for a long time. Jay, you were an assistant. Were, were you guys at all surprised that both coaches allowed, you know, I'm used to collegiate coaches calling timeouts on situations like that. And I was actually surprised that they let both teams kind of go without calling timeout. Uh, were, were you guys surprised by that or, or, or is it more knowing your team? I, I was not surprised um, because I think both both coaches want their offense to be able to go uh, against a defense that not that's not set. I mean, you give a timeout to your opponent and you give them a chance to to set up to catch their breath, and I think you're less likely, at least in that game, to get something good. I mean, that, that was my issue with Baylor uh, last night when they had that last possession against Texas Tech. Was you know I know you're down three, get that thing to the rim. And, and, you know, go a thousand miles an hour and, <laughs> and make somebody take a charge on you. Cause you're not going to get anything going along the three point line against Texas tech. It, it just wasn't going to, and you saw it didn't happen, yeah. but, but, you know, you got to get that thing to the rim, which is what, and I know the game situation was a little bit different. But that's what Kansas did. 
you know, and look, you got to know your team a little bit. Like I, I would, I would say uh, the game that, that we saw with Kentucky playing LSU, you know, when Kentucky has Xavier Wheeler out, Ty Ty Washington was compromised with those cramps and they have a chance at the end. And, you know, Oscar Shibway made that steal, turned it over. They scored. Yeah. You know, that's where I think if John Calipari had it back when they were down three, he would have called the timeout uh, to get his team together because they were they were not together at that time. Um, but he, I th- I'm sure he was thinking the same thing that, Hey, let, let's not let a, a great defensive team, or at least a team who's better on defense than they are on offense in LSU. Let's not that, let them get a plan, get set. And then we got to go against that. Um, uh, but, but the problem was Kentucky wasn't setting together with their offense. So it was a bad combo. Um, but, but I, you know, Bill self, I'm not surprised. I don't think coach K would do that. I know Roy Williams wouldn't do it. I think they'd let their guys go. And, uh, you know, look, if you're around half court and you, you, you see this isn't going to work, you know, I get it when guys call timeout then, but when you got a chance to get down and, and, and get to a defense before they, you know, they get themselves together and have a plan, uh, other than their normal principles. Uh, I like that situation a lot better to get a good shot. Yeah. Look, it was a 50 point game. It was hard to get an easy buck. Look. So, I mean, if you could play ahead of the defense, if you could get the defense in transition, if you can get an open floor, uh, that was going to be your best chance to score. And the, the interesting thing to me was it, there was no even hesitation by players. Boom, the ball was out of bounds and it was up the floor. And, and Jay, you're hundred percent right. As that ball's coming up the floor in your mind, you're thinking advantage, disadvantage, advantage, disadvantage. That ball crosses half court. If you've got enough space and the court is spread well enough, boom, you, you've practiced that. That's why you do time and score every single day in practice. Sure, That's sure. why you play those two-minute games. That's why you play those short clock games. So I thought both both teams played really hard. I thought both teams, you know, took advantage of an open floor and got good looks. And, you know, I thought it was really impressed with Harris because, I mean, he came off of that thing, and that was just – that was a big time – you know, that, that dribble, once he cleared that little bump, was straight at the rim yeah. and used the rim to protect protect the layup. So I, I thought that was, that, was, that was just really impressive. Jay, your game. Uh, you know, the first five, seven minutes of the Kentucky-Vanderbilt game, I thought the spacing and the ball movement of Kentucky was the best I've seen it all year. I really, I just, in terms of their spacing, obviously they didn't get much resistance. Then Cal subbed in and Vanderbilt made that run against those inexperienced players. And at the end of the game, the same thing happened. They'll get Xavier Wheeler back. They'll have seven. Do you think they need to find an eighth? You were there watching it. A front court sub is specifically probably to deal with the grind of the Auburns, the Alabamas, you know, the depth of the SEC. Yeah, but I think it's, we're talking spot minutes here. And uh, I think Bryce Hopkins can be that guy. He's the most likely, you know, uh, Damian Collins is a little slight of build. He's a super athlete and he's going to be outstanding. Uh, But I think his learning curve is a little steeper than than Hopkins right now. Uh, And Hopkins is a little bit more versatile, so he can handle the ball and play on the floor a little bit more and still get in and bang around, rebound and make a play. Uh, I'm not too worried about their depth. Uh, Would you like to have a few more experienced bodies? If they had C.J. Frederick, who transferred in from Iowa, I'd feel really good about it, but he's out for the season with that, that hamstring thing. Um, that would give them another guy who shoots upper 40s for three <laughs> yes. and is a low turnover, great passer, maybe the best post feeder in college basketball last year. 
you know, I know throwing it at Luca Garza is a pretty good deal, but, but <laughs> throwing it at Oscar Sheboy ain't bad either. Um, you know, the one thing, Seth, to your point about like early on, one of the things about their spacing that was helpful is uh, Wheeler wasn't in there. Yeah. And and when Wheeler's in there, his man plays 10 feet off him. And uh, and so that's kind of a clog for for running some offense. Uh, I think Notre Dame exposed that and was able to slow him down. I think Wheeler's done a better job in the game since then before he got hurt against LSU of of really taking up that space and not, you know, not letting, you know, just just go. I mean, if somebody's giving you five, six feet, get downhill and go at them and then make something happen that way, make them play you. And, and it's not just, Hey, they're giving me all this room. I'm going to shoot it. Cause he's just not a good shooter and uh, he'll make some of them, but he'll miss more. Of them. And uh, you know, the only positive to that is, you know, and that's why Kentucky never wants to turn it over is like, get a shot and Oscar will go get it. If we miss um, because there, and there's a lot of truth to that. And, and, you know, Keon Brooks is, is, has become a better offensive rebounder. You know, they've got the ability to do that. I, I, I like Kentucky's team. I'll tell you guys, you know, Southern Fonz, like I was really impressed with Jerry Stackhouse in practice, the offense he runs. He runs as good a stuff as anybody in the game. He just doesn't have he just doesn't have personnel right now. I mean, Scotty Pippen Jr. is really good. They got good players. Miles Studi's good. Um, you know, Jordan Wright is good. They've got good players, um, but they're not they're not in the upper echelon of talent in the SEC. And you'll have people say, well, you know, Vanderbilt hadn't won that many games. How many did they win before he got there? Zero. I mean, yeah. they won literally zero in the league. So, you know, he's done a good job of, of getting them back to being respectable and, and climbing the ladder a little bit. But his offense is his offensive concepts, the way they kind of he calls it pull behind. I think the way they play behind action. Yeah. Um, you know, Kentucky just I thought did a really good job of, of defending. You know, they 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 kept him on their heels most of the game. And uh, really the only guy that they, they took everybody out of the game except for for Scottie Pippen Jr. He had a great game. But but, you know, oftentimes you can score 28 or 30. But when your team gets beat, nobody cares. And the truth is, you know, even though he's a terrific player and played really well, nobody's going to care because Kentucky took everybody else out and took their ranks away from him. Yeah. And I think I think, too, Jay, is uh, I think people forget that the uh, Minnesota transfer Robbins is still out. And I think in a game like last night, Robbins, because of his ability to be able to step out and knock down a shot, he's physical inside. Uh, can score over out of the shoulder, he would have made Oscar Shibuya have to guard. And I think that would have been a different dynamic for them. And see, I thought I heard you say, is, is he is he coming back at the end of January? Beginning they're of hoping, yeah, they're hoping February finds he's got a foot issue. So he's yes. back working out now. He's not practicing. But Liam Robbins, who started, he's from Davenport, Iowa, seven footer. And you're exactly yeah. right. Like he's a skilled big guy that can step away mm-hmm. and knock down a three from time to time. He's a good shot blocker. He averaged almost, yeah, almost three blocks a game in Minnesota. Yep. So he transferred from Drake to Minnesota. His uh, his uncle is Ed Conroy, uh, the former Tulane head coach who was an assistant to Richard Pitino at Minnesota. Now he's an assistant to Jerry Stackhouse at Vanderbilt. Uh, so not only for weather, but also for for his uncle and playing for for Stack. Uh, he's at Vanderbilt now, and he's a graduate and all that stuff. So he's in a graduate program. But but you know the other guy that didn't play last night for Vanderbilt was Rodney Chapman who played right. at Dayton with Obi yes. Toppin, yep. excellent defender. Yep. So he can he runs the point and allows Pippen to um, work off the ball. And mm-hmm. you know I, look Pippen again he's a really good player. But the three games before they played Kentucky had 18 turnovers, including 14 and mm-hmm. in, against uh, uh, in two games against South Carolina and Arkansas. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he, they turned the ball over too much. They, they forced yeah. 17, but, but they turned it over 14, 15 themselves. And a few games they've had kind of 19 stuff, you know, yeah. 18, 19. And uh, they're not going to, they're not going to beat the best teams in the league with that. You know, one thing I, I like, I think Kentucky as good as they defend that I'd like to see them get better at. They, they get stuck to screens, especially ball screens. You know, they're trying mm-hmm. to down stuff and that's great to try to keep it on one side or for, for a sweep. But you eventually got to get back in front of the ball. And I, I, think, <laughs> I think the Alabamas, the Auburns, if you don't get back in front of the ball, they're not beating those teams unless they can keep the ball in front. Like it, 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 if you can't keep the ball in front when you're playing Alabama and Auburn, mm-hmm. you have a problem. And you might have a problem anyway. So, I mean, like <laughs> that's an area I think that Kentucky, their ability to just keep the ball in front, I think, it, and, and especially when, they, when they're playing some ball screens where they're down in them, where, you know, they switched a bunch from yesterday, but, you know, if they're going to play drop coverage or whatever, uh, you know, in terms of a, a side ball screen where they're down and they still got to get back in front of the ball. And I think they, uh, Jacob Toppin yesterday, he really struggled getting back in front of the ball at times and he does some freaky things offensively. <laughs> yes. We've got a game day show this week. We're all going to end up picking some superlatives on, on some positions. So I'm going to throw some some things at you, do a little homework. I don't know which direction I'm going. Uh-oh. Who's the toughest matchup in all college basketball? Who is the toughest matchup? I would say Jabari Smith. Of, so was my uh, first pick. Of Auburn. Um, yeah. I mean, you guys saw what he did against uh, Alabama. He was phenomenal. Uh, he's a freak, man. And not just a, a great athlete. But at 6'10", to be able to shoot it the way he does, and what I really what I really enjoyed watching was, man, that was a gritty, tough, physical game. And and he got his nose dirty in that one and didn't back down from anybody um, on the road. And yeah. that, that was really impressive. So I, I would say it's him because of his size and his ability to shoot it from, from distance. Yeah, one B for me would be Paolo Bancaro. And I know he settles at times for too many J's. I, I think, Jay, he, especially when he's in one-on-one situations in ISO, I think he lets guys off the hook a little bit too much. At, at, at 6'10", with his ability to change speeds, change direction with the dribble, uh, one bump, he's got separation and able to score. But I have not seen anyone, when he's not settling for his jump shot, be able to keep that dude in front, to be able to rip it off the glass and push it up the floor. He was able to get all the way to the rim. He gets to the middle of the floor and he'll pass it. Uh, he can play with his back to the basket. If uh, I agree with you with Jabari Smith, he's 1A. Apollo Bancaro's 1B. <laughs> well, uh, so where would like Jaden Ivey and Johnny Davis be? Because I, you know what? I was talking to someone today and they made a good point. Johnny Davis has a little Devin Booker in him. Yeah. Like Johnny Davis can like, you know, he, not, not the great stroke, but just like he has an easy gape about him. He's he got an easy pace about his game on the ball, off the ball, going left. His pull up is a joke. It's so good. Yes. Um, and he didn't even like, start last year. I know. It's crazy. <laughs> right. yeah. I mean, he wasn't on anybody's, he wasn't on anybody's yeah. like preseason all America list. And now right. he's top five for the wooden award. Yeah. And uh, uh, he's legit, man. That 37 he put up the other yes. night. Yes. against Purdue was mm-hmm. ridiculous. Yes. Um, you know, he, he's not only an NBA player, he's going to be an outstanding NBA player. Yeah. And you guys, I mean, you guys know I have big man bias. So Seth, you know, I was yeah, going to go Kofi Coburn right guys. now. I know that. No, they know I'm not going to mention those two guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hard. Like, you know, like you talk about the toughest matchup, Zach Eady. I mean, he plays mm-hmm. Nerf basketball. He, <laughs> yes. you, know, you know, EJ Liddell. 
I yes. mean, like, you know, like I think he's now he didn't play well. Trace Jackson Davis, like as I started going through this stuff, I, yes. I started Our, thinking we've got some really dynamic yes. players playing college basketball. Like the only mm-hmm. reason I brought it up is, you know, we're getting ready to second half of the year. We've got some really exciting, dynamic players playing college yes. basketball this year that yes. we need, you know, to, to really celebrate that are on good winning teams. Yes. You know, the funny part, Seth and Fonz, is the the if if we put a list together of sort of the player of the year list, the overwhelming majority of, uh, of those players are in the Big Ten. That's uh, a great point. The Big, the big Ten point. has the best, you know, they have the best big guys in the country and and overall the best front court players in the country. And look, I know Drew Timmy and we mentioned Paolo Bancaro and Jabari Smith and all that stuff. But, yeah. um, man, you, you know, when you start going, OK, Coburn and Davis and Trace Jackson Davis uh, and down the down the list of outstanding players and, and Travion Williams, Jaden Ivey yeah. and Zach Eady at Purdue. You know, you start you start talking about it, it's Big Ten centric. And and I'm ho- here's what I'm hopeful for the Big Ten. We we talk we we all I think believe and I don't want to I don't want to mischaracterize your opinions but I think we all believe the Big Ten was the best league last year mm-hmm. and they went and laid a gigantic egg yeah, in the tournament yeah. and and this year I think they're under the radar a little bit they're not uh-huh. we're not talking about and, and you know maybe this year is the year with all this uber talent they have individually that you know the Big Ten kind of puts puts that to rest a little bit yeah. Hey, Jay, let's not forget about Keegan Murray at Iowa. Yeah. He's done some spectacular numbers, too. And another versatile hey. 16 dude that can score anywhere on the floor. And how about this? So I was talking to Liam Robbins, uh, you know, who we just talked about at Vanderbilt. And and he was saying that that those guys, you know, he grew up in Iowa and said uh-huh. that, you know, Keegan Murray and his brother used to come to Drake to play pickup games. And they told, you know, he told their coaches, he goes, you know, those guys are pretty good. And he says, well, you know, the coach says, well, you know, we're going to wait on them. You know, we think they, they may go to prep school, so we're going to wait. And, wow. and Robbins is saying, I don't know. Those guys are pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> they, turned out, they turned out to be pretty good. Hey, hey, it's not as easy as it looks. Believe me. What? <laughs> Coach Van Gundy, yeah. you, can, you can hear this babbling that we're going on. So I got a question. You text me. You said you were at a – what game did you go to this past weekend? I just went last night to Iowa State, Kansas. Hmm. You, you did. And then what got you to Iowa State, Kansas, and so that you went to a college basketball game? Uh, well, I also went to Rice beating UAB which on Saturday, Whoa. which is one of the most under-talked about great wins. Like, UAB is really good. They're mm-hmm. really good. I don't know the name of their point guard because he fast. I couldn't catch his name on the back of his jersey. But he was <laughs> – he was – he was really good. They have good depth, and that guy can really coach too. So um, it was a good game. But last time, I've only been to Lawrence one in my life for a clinic. I'd never seen a game there, and I know TJ pretty well. Um, and so I went, and uh, it was an unbelievable game until the refs screwed it up in the last t- two minutes. <laughs> All right, wait, they say, you it can't up. say that. Tell us how they screwed it up. Okay, missed goaltending. They could have gone to review. They didn't. Then they made it up with a, a phantom offensive foul on a screen. Um, then Iowa State Brockington made like two or three pull-ups down the stretch to give them the lead by one. And, and I think, Jay, you were talking about this before. The amount of contact in that league 
I don't know what sport it is, but it's not basketball. Like every, <laughs> it's a bear hug and it's a, like a grab and you know, it's a play on. And, and then in the last 20 seconds on a drive that the guy's not even at the rim, he's at like 21 feet. Who's Kansas's best player. It starts with an a Abajai or something. He's really good. So he put it down. Everything has gone on all game. And they blow the whistle, give them two free throws because they're in the double bonus. You know, I mean, it's like, come on, man. <laughs> oh, but, you know, Jeff, I, I, oh, I've been railing Willis on this. Is fired up now. <laughs> well, I mean, I, that's why I want to follow up on it. Like, I've been railing on this for the last, you know, for the last three months. And you could see it from the start of the year. Um, you know, we, we in college basketball have had a freedom of, of movement initiative like the NBA had years and years ago. And for a couple of years, it went really well. The officials did a great job enforcing it. Um, scoring went way up, but it wasn't going up from, from increased free throws. So the, the adjustment seemed like it was made. And I know we have 350 teams, so it's a 354, whatever it is. So it's a lot more data. But, um, you know, I've, I've noticed from the opening tap this year that, you know, you're grabbing cutters now. You can blow up dribble handoffs, just blow the guy off the ball. You can blow up ball screens now, which in your league would be clear fouls. And I don't, I mean, I don't understand why it's happening. So, so just in the, in what you've watched, you, you saw it and it, it, it stood out to you. So I've watched every Iowa state game, except I, ref, I told, I told TJ, I refuse to watch them play Chicago state. Okay. I'm not doing, (laughs) you know, pay them all you want, beat them by all you want, but I'm not, I'm not watching that. So other than that, and in the first, I think that, yeah, there's, they've played four big 12 games and like, you know, like I go to rice, I've seen them like four or five times this year. It's intense. It's aggressive. It's nothing like the big 12 though. The big 12 must have a rule book unto itself in that <laughs> anything goes. I was ready for them to bring out the uh, like the ropes, like WWE and have somebody come up <laughs> the top buckle. And, because I, I, I was astounded. Like the NBA has done a good job this year taking away those fake calls where guys would dive into people. You know, it, it has to be a legitimate shot now. And there's a little bit more balance between offense and defense. But the thing I see in the Big 12 is – the intensity, the preparation is so high that if you don't regulate the contact, the offense really has no chance. Like there's those guys are playing so hard and everybody knows what everybody's doing, strengths and weaknesses of every player. And then add into that. And by the way, um, you don't have freedom of movement. You have freedom if you go into the lane to get your head knocked off. That's what <laughs> <laughs> Hey, 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 coach, but how different is that from when you were coaching the Knicks in the, in the 90s? Because that was exactly. a rule whenever anybody came oh. to the hole. So I, I was interested to ask you, when you're watching those – when you're watching the Big 12 games, how differently is the phys- how different is the physicality there from what it was in the early mid-90s in the league? No, it, it reminds me exactly of that time in that you – to score a basket was almost like to have a celebration. You know, like <laughs> – and it's the same way in the Big 12. I think the game should stop every time there's a basket and just like, <laughs> hey, you get the game ball. You know, because I, – and I'm trying to figure out, like, I love the intensity. Like, there's no place like – I tell you, I've never been in a place like that. Like, mm-hmm. to watch that game was one of the great thrills of my life. Um, 
the atmosphere, the Kansas fans are so nice to the opposing team. Like, hey, have a good night on your way out. I'm like, that's not the New York Knicks. Like, <laughs> um, so uh, it, it just, it was great. I, but I just don't understand. Is it different in other, like other leagues? Because I watch Cal in the, in the uh, Pac-12 all the time. Um, and it doesn't seem like, I mean, UCLA is tough and physical, but it doesn't seem like the Big 12 to me. It just doesn't seem that way. Big 12. No, it's, I think it's different. Defense. Yeah, I think it's different in some of these leagues. You know, the, the ACC has gotten way more physical this year. Uh, and, you know, the Big 12 is probably the most. And then the Big 10 is not far behind. But, um, it, you know, and the SEC is, is you know, I, I saw a fist fight between LSU and uh, uh, LSU and Kentucky. And, you know, you, you I, I've been calling them like they say, you know, how was the game last night? And I said, you know, it was a hell of a hockey game. It, you know, it wasn't a great basketball game, but it was an unbelievable hockey game. And I don't know why we want this. And I don't know why the supervisors are allowing it. Um, you know, look, our officials are good guys. I think they want to do a good job. But if you ask me, we've waved a white flag on freedom of movement and we shouldn't even mention it anymore because we don't have it. So let's stop talking about it. And I just feel bad for J.D. Collins, the supervisor of officials of the NCAA, because what's he going to do? Say, hey, if you guys don't do a better job, we're not going to hire you for the NCAA tournament. They got to hire 120 officials or we can't have a tournament. And, <laughs> and those guys are going, well, all I got to do is be in the top 120. I'm fine. You know, that's, that's not a high bar to, to, to clear. Well, and it's also, I would think it's very hard, like, to get it. So when they do get to the tournament, what are the rules? Like, if, if I'm a Big 12 team and I've just come off, what do they play, 20 league games and then the tournament, yeah. right? Like, I've got one style of play. And if you get non-Big 12 officials, like, that's a tough adjustment. And, and, and the thing is that, like, you guys were just, before I came on, I was listening to you talk about all the talent offensively. Um, I always feel like in college basketball, the talent or the skill will never, um, if you allow that contact, come up to the level of intensity. There's no way to defeat it. Whereas in the NBA, I, I think, you know, in the 90s, it was all defense. And then all the rules changed. Every benefit of the doubt went to the offense. And now I think they're trying to find a middle ground wherever mm-hmm. you have good footwork and you have good intensity. You have a good chance to guard your guy or team, you know? And I just think that's the balance, the college game. Like there was a, a woman who officiated the game last night and I thought she was tremendous. Um, uh, she did a great job. Uh, as did, I thought the two, two guys, I don't know their names. You would recognize them. I see them on TV all the time. I thought they did both coaches, like no one's complaining, the players, but like they should have been complaining because it yeah. was ridiculous. But they just, I guess, even the coaches are just like, okay, that's how it's going to be, you know? So, but you know, I, Jeff, I, I can see it. One of, the, one of the ways I can see it is not just in the games, but in practices. So coaches now in the practices I go to are teaching fouling techniques. And I've heard a few of them actually say, you know, go, go, and, like, go on this double team and foul the guy with your chest and knock him back. The referee won't call it. And then he says, and if they do call it, that one's on me, you know, that kind of thing. And, and you're going, okay, well, if the refs aren't calling it, the coaches aren't stupid. They're going to teach to what the, what the referees allow. And it's kind of like speeding on a highway. You know, if you want to reduce speeding, you got to hand tickets out and nobody's asking for, 
you know, calling touch fouls and ticky tack stuff, you know, or, or to give a ticket to somebody going 67 and a 65. But when they start going 85, if you don't give them a ticket, everybody's going to go 85. And, well, and that's what we got in the college game now. And I don't know how we've allowed this to happen. I think well, the big thing, the Big 12 is so much more defense oriented. After you get done with this, we need to scout a report on Fonz back in the day because I want to know your game plan. <laughs> Easy. No catch and shoot, baby. And if you went for that shot, fake drive left, I, I'm going to crush somebody. Like, that's like, <laughs> that's sort of massive. Okay. But I have one thing about – one more thing about that game, which I – you know, so there's all this con- – they call this – they were doing with their hands like this sort of cylinder thing. Cylinder. Yeah. What is that? If you if you are coming on a double team or, or guarding, it, you know you can get chest to chest. But if it's like if you invade the player's space, um, in the cylinder usually comes in to play when there is like somebody gets elbowed or something. Yeah. They'll say, like "Well, when they pivot, you know, like when yeah, they pivot. when they yeah. pivot and say, okay, he was in the cylinder, therefore the elbow is okay.' You know, you can t- if somebody's in the cylinder, you can take his head off, and and it'll be a foul on the defense." And I'm okay with it. You know, I, I think that's fine. They don't call it that often. Um, but, but in a game like, like Iowa state, Kansas, where that thing's going to be a back alley brawl and it's close, you know, you know, kind of close combat hand to hand warfare. They're um, going to call that a little bit. This was the crazy thing. So they called that twice. So they, they got a couple people on shoplifting, but as you said, when the guy's driving, everybody shows their hands and fouls with their lower body on every drive. It's like, you have to be a contortionist to finish the drive because you're like, you know, at all different angles. I was like, you know, there's there's a manslaughter going on and you just uh, got got the guy from shoplifting before the manslaughter. I mean, it was like, I, anyway, I, I was, when you saw it up close, when I saw it up close, because I don't get to those many power five games, I was like, oh my goodness, that is something in that league. Well, I'm glad you got to see Allen Fieldhouse. I, I think that's the best place in the country for a game. And, uh, and it's certainly the best place to do a game because of, of where you are. But it, there's there's nowhere like it. And, and like Cameron Indoor Stadium is right with it. You know, one one and one A and all that stuff. It's on the, the highest tier. But to me, there's no better place to watch a basketball game than Allen Fieldhouse. Hey, Jeff, what was what was your Olympic experience like this year? I mean, obviously you were there from beginning to end. You set the stage with obviously coaching those teams that had to qualify, which is an amazing accomplishment in itself. Congratulations. But what was like from the beginning of your involvement with USA Basketball to winning the championship? What, what was that journey like? Well, you mentioned it. It was a, a four or five year like time frame. And it, it was truly an honor, you know, like everybody knows like what a great coach uh, Greg Popovich is and Steve Lloyd Pierce and Jay Wright, right? Staff. But, you know, you guys know him, but I don't think America for the most part knows what Sean Ford is to USA basketball. Yep. Sean Ford is one of the great leaders uh, of all time. Like he, you know, it's a true definition of servant leadership. For me, he was like telling me when to call timeout, what the referee was going to call, who can substitute, who can't, and also giving water out to guys, right? And so, you know, this guy, and so I guess the whole thing, like it renewed my 
like I really enjoyed working with the G League guys. Now, when I was coaching in the NBA, the G League was used as a threat. Like, if you don't do what I'm asking, you're going to Laredo, right? And we may never see you again, right? And, and so now every NBA team uses the G League, you know, uh, for great purpose, you know, player development, all that. And it's great, right? And so I got to, use, you know, to spend time. I think I coached 72 different guys in, in these, all these windows. And they all are great at their job. Like I remember one time uh, looking over the bios and we had Bryce Alford. And at that time he was playing for Oklahoma city uh, blue, their G league team. And I said to him, I think he was fifth leading scorer in UCLA history. I said, do you know the other dudes that are on that list? Like <laughs> you're, you're acting disappointed that you're not in the NBA. And I'm like, I couldn't get a bucket at Nazareth and you're the fifth leading scorer at UCLA. Like, <laughs> like, please like understand how good you guys are at your job. And really you went down the line, all of them, they like beyond fantastic. And the only problem I felt for him is like, let's say there's 400 players in the NBA. Well, these guys are in the top a thousand at their job in the world, but the, the disparity in income was so much that I understood their frustration. So, you know, that part was great. And then the NBA players, um, you know, I don't know them like I once did as people, you know, I just watch them and, you know, um, I don't really speak to many of them unless they're on a team of guys that I know the coaches, but Kevin Durant, I, I got to say, we, we've all used the superlatives, but I watched this guy after you know, we had light practices in Japan because we were playing a lot, but Kevin Durant was so maniacal and economical in his workout after practice. It was a thing to behold. Now he also got positive feedback on every shot because every shot went in. Right. So <laughs> it wasn't like some of these dudes who were the balls flying all over the rim or, or the gym, like, but it was amazing to watch. And I still remember this, my first training camp in Houston, was at the University of Texas, or my second one. So we go down to University of Texas, and we were doing the old two-a-days, which I think are outlawed now in the NBA. But So we would get there at 9 for a 10 o'clock practice and get there at 5 for a 6 o'clock practice. So when we came at 9 as coaches, there was this tall, skinny dude on the court, like, killing himself. And I'm like, he looked like he was 15, but he was obviously talented. So he would be working. Then when our guys came, he would watch practice. Then when we got off, he would come back on as he was starting to work. And then we left. Then we came back for the night practice. He was on the court. And then he watched the second practice. And then he came on the court after the second practice. So this is his like fourth workout of the day. I'm like, who is this guy? And it was Kevin Durant. And I'm like, I don't know what classes he's in. But that dude's a worker and he, he like he is the same guy today as what I saw back uh, in the preseason of his freshman year. And it was it was great to see that he still had that same joy for the game because the business of basketball can suck the joy out of the game. Sometimes I'm just glad that he he and a lot of those other guys still can retain it. Oh, speaking of players, uh, 
And there's more, there's more, but two guys that I can think of right now that played for you are now head coaches. You have Monty Williams, of course, head coach of the Phoenix Suns, and then Patrick Ewing, head coach of Georgetown. When they played for you, did you have, and I know coach-player relationship is a little different in the NBA, but did you have any idea that those guys would not only be coaches, but successful head coaches? I I just can't believe someone who made the money that Patrick did Mm -hmm. is – you know, like when he was done playing, um, that he would pursue coaching. But he, you know, he immediately pursued it with, you know, it was Michael Jordan and Doug Collins, right, um, with the with the Wizards. And then, you know, they let Jordan go. And I remember saying, hey, you want to come to Houston when, when I went? And he was like, yeah, I want to, but I don't want to be a big man coach. I want to be a coach. And that's exactly what he did. I mean, he worked like he worked when he was a player. He was early, he stayed late, and he did his job exceedingly well. Now, he's got a different communication style than Monty. You know, <laughs> Monty is professorial, like, and he is, yes. like, deep. Patrick's yes. a few MFs get back or, you know, <laughs> right? So, you know, it's all different. But, man, I am so proud of both of them and, That's you know, right. Um, you know, Monty like has such a grace about him with all the things that have happened in his life, uh, to still be optimistic and, um, you know, uh, again, like serving others. The only thing I ask of him is if I go into college coaching, I get first dibs on the NIL with his son. I saw the size of his son and the skill of his son, (laughs) like in eighth grade. I said, at least all those times me, you, and Charlie Ward were in the gym, I get hurt big. Like, you know, I may get old, I might get beat out, and I'm yes. I'm cool with that, but I get first bid at least. Yes. Yes. Whew. He's talented. Very talented. Yeah. You know, Jeff, you, you guys probably, well, you know this. I mean, while all the coaches in college are are complaining about the transfer portal. The guy that really started the the transfer portal and all the problems that come from transferring is Jeff Van Gundy. I mean, he. <laughs> how many times did you transfer? You started. You're the only, you have to be the only player that transferred out of the Ivy League to go to Menlo College. I, I, yeah, when you go from Yale to JUCO, it's now a four year school. But when you go JUCO, you know that like you have a problem that your mom and dad did not address when you were young. Right. So um, (laughs) like I'm going to blame them, but yeah, you know what? I went to four different colleges and I, like I always tell somebody, I I was, I was in the process of finding myself. And what I was finding is I wanted somebody to tell me, no, no, you're really good. You're better than the other guys thought you were. And uh, I never found that guy. And I played for my dad (laughs) for one year, you know? So like, you know, <laughs> oh my goodness. Nobody I, I, told me I was good and I played for my dad. <laughs> I, my brother has the best story uh, of like when, when he was a high school player in, in uh, California before we moved back uh, to upstate New York. So my dad, he's coaching and, and his school was about 45 minutes away. So he didn't get to see my brother play much in high school. Right. And so my brother was a prolific high school scorer. That let's just say, you know, he wasn't overpassing in high school, right? <laughs> so, so 
my dad gets to see him like play this game and he goes off. Like he plays unbelievable. So, you know, he's coming out with a swagger, getting in the car. I'm in the back seat. He, he pops in the front seat and he turns to, uh, he, he turns to my dad for validation. My dad looked at him and goes, I have a difficult time watching you play. <laughs> oh, it was good. It was classic. <laughs> Your back and forth with Stan uh, when we did the NBA draft might have been my finest moment as a broadcaster. Just just watching a colleague when when you were texting him saying, "Hey, who are you guys going to draft?" and and Stan texted back like, "I don't know who any of these guys are. Just say just say we've been targeting him, and we're really <laughs> glad we got him." <laughs> you always would say we can't believe that he fell to us you know, like you know like, like, we can't believe it like he's exactly exactly what we need you know and then you got to go and look what can he do uh not much but whatever you know well, it's, it's, uh, funny hey, hey you mentioned coaching college could you ever see yourself dealing with what college basketball is about now compared to what it was when you were 23 years old, but having to wake up at five 30 in the morning to play pick up with Rick, getting cursed out, getting fired, getting rehired, driving him where he needs to go. I mean, you know, I think this, if I was in college the whole time, I probably would have a harder time adjusting, but I think, yeah, I could see myself doing it because, you know, you're your own general manager. Like, you don't get necessarily who you want, but you don't have to take anybody you don't want. And and also, you hire your own staff. Now, in the NBA now, the point. GMs are hiring these huge staffs, um, which I don't really understand because I think it really impacts staff chemistry. Um, like, too many people – is probably as big a problem as not having enough people. So anyway, I think those are two positives. The one I I wish they could do, I wish they could play more games. I wish they could play like 40, 45 games, Um, you know, play three times a week. Um, I I think that would be great. I, I think sometimes now, you know, it's interesting when I, when I, when I was in college, you could never work with players except in the season, but there was no 20 hour rule. So, you know, with coach Patino, um, if there was a 20 hour rule, we would have violated in the first two days, right? That's how it was. (laughs) So, you know, so there was no 20 hour rule. So you can do whatever you want in season, but then out of season, you couldn't do anything. And now it's come down to, you can coach year around, which I, I think sometimes maybe you shouldn't coach year round. Maybe, give them some more time off to be, you know, normal students or whatever. But in the NBA now, you used to practice all the time. And now you could practice all the time, but no one wants to practice. So it's it's interesting. If, if you like the practice floor, I think college basketball is really an interesting type of thing. I wish there were more games, more competitions, um, you know, and, and, you know, so anyway, I, I could see it, but, you know, it's, it would be hard. It'd be by starting so far behind someone like me coming into college basketball, you wouldn't even know like where to begin, um, you know, except, you know, like find a guy with money and call it NIL and buy some people. You know what I would do? 
<laughs> you know what? No, seriously, now you guys are going to think I'm nuts, but I I was thinking about this. Andy Enfield, he hired um, uh, Mr. Mobley, right? The Mobley's dad. Yes. Like, I am going to. My staff is going to be me and three family members of guys I want to pay, but can't legally. <laughs> it can be anybody. It can be anybody. You can send your mom, your aunt, your uncle. And for as long as you're there, they're going to get paid. And if it's twins or triplets, that's what I'm really looking for. I'm going to pay you double or triple if they're triplets. Or double or triple. So I'm going to have the most unique staff, you know, of all time. It's going to be Mrs. Jones, Uncle Harry, and, uh, you know, somebody's sister. It's going to be great. You, you'd kill it. You'd kill it in college. Like, I, I, I don't know. I don't believe there are, there is such a thing as a college coach or an NBA coach. I mean, you, you obviously have to adjust to wherever you are. But uh, like, I think if Jay Wright went up to the NBA, he'd do extraordinarily well. I think if, if Steve Kerr, Greg Popovich or you went to college, they'd do incredibly well. But I remember you saying somebody asked you years ago if you'd coach in college and you said, no, I don't want to deal with all the agents. <laughs> well, no, I mean. You know, it's really interesting. Uh, I mean, you say a lot of these, you know, like I say some stupid stuff. I don't even believe myself half the time, but like, anyway, <laughs> when I, like, like in the NBA, I only dealt with one agent one time. It was a different time. You know, they always went through, you know, management. Now I get, I think agents have direct asset access to the NBA head coaches and you wow. sort of have to like, you know, work through that situation. In college, I don't know if it's the same way, but man, you talk to some college friends, like they say, you got to be tied in with a shoe company and an agent. I'm like, for what? Like, it's the player, <laughs> you know? So, 100%. Yeah. So I don't know. Like, that's interesting. Like, so even like that, you're starting so far behind. You don't have those, like, you know, just like that corporate knowledge that Greg Popovich talks about. Like, you would have to go under like an intent, or I would like an intensive, like, all right, this is what you got to know. And like the other thing, if I was scheduling and I had a friend who's now in the NBA that was in college, he said, just schedule 20 wins. No one cares if you play Alabama state or Alcorn, <laughs> they just want to see you in the NCAA tournament. And, and I said to him, so I'm going to waste my players. Like if I was at like a power five, let's say I'm going to waste my players six games, six of 30, whatever they get, six of 33 on, on the, on these bad games. Why, why, why would, why would we do that? But I guess that's normal. I'd rather play teams of that, like either are really good or really interesting, like locally for, you know, like every team should, every group should have a big five mentality. Like you play all these teams close to you. Like I, that's what I would think, but. This guy says I'd crazy. I'd be losing my job in two years. <laughs> <laughs> but not if you had the philosophy of hiring everyone's parents, because I'll tell you one thing. You're right about that. I mean, like acquiring talent and having either that or having eight to ten guys that flat out, you know, are going to create NIL jobs. I mean, how does a guy that's never thrown a pass? He was well worth it for Alabama make a million dollars before he threw a pass. I mean, they have they those guys right now, whether they want to admit it or not, every high-level program has 10 to 12 guys in place to make sure that 
you know, a trickle down effect when a kid comes and visits, go, yeah, my NIL deal, I'm making 400,000 or do what Cal does. His camps are no longer his camps. His players own his camps. Yeah. What's that mean? It's don't John Calabari. It's player. It's a it's a players first basketball camps. The players own the camps. They have they have they're run by an outside organization. It's the players' camp. They rent the facility. They run the camp. Their fantasy camp. The players own the camps. So like like you know where when when you were a head coach and Coach Patino had his camp or Stu had his camp in Wisconsin. Uh, Smart guys are just saying, all right, you know, the camp business is not what it used to be, but you can, there's still a lot of money. The players come together, they form an LLC, and and then they end up having someone run their camps for them. And like Kentucky goes all over the state of Kentucky doing camps. They get 150, 200 kids to a camp. You know, they're just like walking $100 bills. Oh, that is awesome. <laughs> I, I'm going to be like, I'm going to get Elon Musk. I'm going to get him. <laughs> and I'm going to say this. I'm going to say, listen, I will name like every, like here's my other one. Think about it. Ennis Cantor changed his name to uh, Ennis Free, Freedom. Okay. What if I had all my guys on my roster change their name to Taco Bell? And I got Taco Bell, <laughs> like legally. So they had to say in the starting lineup, Taco Bell, Taco Bell, Taco Bell, and Taco Bell. And they're getting paid from Taco Bell. Like, I think you can make money by changing your name. Like, I think <laughs> I, I can change my name to Taco Bell for free product. I love Taco Bell. I love, <laughs> love Taco Bell. I mean, that could be pregame meal, too. You know, we might have sometimes bouts where it didn't work out quite as well as others. But no, I, I'm just saying, like, like. If, if you could get like a Bezos, like, hey, I'll, I'll rename like the school after you. Just fund all of our stuff. You know, <laughs> give us two billion. We'll win. <laughs> <laughs> and it's your loop up. <laughs> yeah. And it's your That's awesome. But, all right, Jeff, that, this is awesome. We, we, hey, hey, hey uh, Tal, you got anything, words of wisdom for uh, Coach Van Gundy? Me? I got nothing. Yeah, I mean, Jeff you got is. Nothing? I, I wish yeah, we, I did. No, I, I thought. Wait a second, it, Taylor. Wait yeah. a second, Taylor. I thought you were going to give your pitch. You just heard the guy say he'd consider coaching in college. I wait. Was waiting for you. Oh my to goodness! Say, well, you know what? My alma mater. We got an opening. Why don't you come to Maryland? I gave you an opportunity to you know to to kind of represent your school. What? what are you not paying attention? Do you Jeff, not even listen to us? Jeff, 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 I love you. I, you're, you're a gentleman. You're a scholar. You're so nice to come on these podcasts that very few people listen to. But uh, I'm sorry. I got my eyes set on, on Bruce Pearl. Bruce Pearl's my he guy. He want compliments. He wants cash. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Gift cards, Jay. Gift yeah, cards. let's talk numbers. <laughs>